0: Mr Speaker,
1: it is a privilege to report today on an economy which the IMF predicts will be the fastest growing major advanced economy in the world this year. An economy with employment at a record high and unemployment at an 11-year low. An economy which through the hard work of the British people has bounced back from the depths of Labour's recession. And an economy which has confounded commentators at home and abroad with its strength and its resilience since the British people decided exactly five months ago today to leave the European Union and chart a new future for our country. Mr Speaker, that decision will change the course of Britain's history. It has thrown into sharp relief the fundamental strengths of the British economy that will ensure our future success the global reach of our services industries, the strength of our science and high-tech manufacturing base, and the cutting-edge British businesses that are leading the world in disruptive technologies. But it's a decision that also makes more urgent than ever the need to tackle our economy's long-term weaknesses, like the productivity gap, the housing challenge, and the damaging imbalance in economic growth and prosperity across our country. Mr Speaker, we resolve today to confront those challenges head-on, to prepare our country to seize the opportunities ahead, and in doing so, to build an economy that works for everyone, an economy where every corner of this United Kingdom is part of our national success. Mr Speaker, I want to pay tribute to my predecessor, my right honourable friend, the member, for Tatton. My, my style, uh, Mr Speaker, will of course be different from his. Uh, I suspect that I will prove no more adept at pulling rabbits from hats than my successor as Foreign Secretary has been at retrieving balls from the back of scrums. But my focus, <laughs> my focus on building Britain's long-term future will be the same. He took over an economy on the brink of collapse with the highest budget deficit in our post-war history and brought it down by two-thirds. That is a record of which he can be proud. But times have moved on and our task now is to prepare our economy to be resilient as we exit the EU and match fit for the transition that will follow. So we will maintain our commitment to fiscal discipline while recognising the need need for investment to drive productivity and fiscal headroom to support the economy through the transition. Mr Speaker, let me turn now to the forecasts. Since 2010, the Office for Budget Responsibility has provided an independent economic and fiscal forecast to which the Government must respond. Gone are the days when the Chancellor could mark his own homework. And I thank Robert Choate and his team for their hard work. Today's OBR forecast is for growth to be 2.1% in 2016, higher than forecast in March. In 2017, the OBR forecast growth to slow to 1.4%, which they attribute to lower investment and weaker commu- consumer demand, driven respectively by greater uncertainty and by higher inflation, resulting from sterling depreciation. That is slower, of course, than we would wish, but still equivalent to the IMF's forecast for Germany and higher than the forecast for growth in many of our European neighbours, including France and Italy, a fact that will, no doubt, be a source of very considerable irritation to some. (laughs) As the effects of uncertainty diminish, the OBR forecast's growth recovering to 1.7% in 2018 2.1% in 2019 and 2020, and 2% in 2021. While the OBR is clear that it cannot predict the deal the UK will strike with the EU, its current view is that the referendum decision means that potential growth over the forecast period is likely to be 2.4 percentage points lower than would otherwise have been the case. The OBR acknowledges that there is a higher degree of uncertainty around these figures than usual. Despite slower growth, the UK labour market is forecast to remain robust. We have delivered over 2.7 million new jobs since 2010, and this forecast, this forecast Mr. Speaker, shows that number growing in every year – another 500,000 jobs created over the OBR forecast providing security for working people across the length and breadth of Britain. Mr Speaker, for those who claim that the recovery is just a south-east phenomenon, I have some news. Over the past year, employment grew fastest in the north-east, the claimant count fell fastest in Northern Ireland, pay grew most strongly in the West Midlands, and every UK nation and region saw a record number of people in work. A Labour that, Mr Speaker, is a labour market recovery that is working for everyone. Monetary policy has played an important role in supporting growth since the referendum decision, but a credible fiscal policy remains essential for maintaining market confidence and restoring the economy to long-term health. In view of the uncertainty facing the economy and in the face of slower growth forecasts we no longer seek to deliver a surplus in 2019-20 but the prime minister and I the prime minister and I Mr Speaker remain firmly committed to seeing the public finances return to balance as soon as practicable while leaving enough flexibility while leaving enough flexibility to support the economy in the near term. Today, I am publishing a new draft charter for budget responsibility with three fiscal rules. First, the public finances should be returned to balance as early as possible in the next parliament, and in the, and in the interim, in the interim, Mr Speaker, cyclically adjusted borrowing should be below 2% by the end of this Parliament. Second, that public sector net debt as a share of GDP must be falling by the end of this Parliament. And third, that welfare spending must be within a cap set by the government and monitored by the OBR. In the absence of an effective framework, the welfare bill in our country spiralled out of control, with spending on working-age benefits trebling in real terms between 1980 and 2010. As a result of the action that we've taken since 2010, that spending has now stabilised and the cap I'm announcing today takes into account the policy changes made since the last Budget, setting a realistic baseline reflecting all announced welfare policies. And I confirm again today that the Government has no plans to introduce further welfare savings measures in this Parliament beyond those already announced. I now turn, Mr Speaker, to the OBR's fiscal forecasts, but first I will set out the key drivers of changes since the Budget. The post-budget changes that were made to welfare and housing policies cost the Exchequer £8.6 billion over the forecast period. Expected ONS classification changes have added £12 billion since Budget and tax receipts have been lower than expected this year, causing the OBR to revise down projected revenues in future. Added to this is a structural effect of rapidly rising incorporation and self-employment, which further erodes revenues. Combining these pressures with the impact of forecast weaker growth and taking account of the measures I shall announce today, the OBR now forecasts that in cash terms, borrowing is set to be £68.2 billion pounds this year, falling to £59 billion pounds next year, £46.5 billion pounds in 1819, then £21.9 billion, pounds, uh, £20.7 billion, pounds, and finally £17.2 billion pounds in 21-22. Overall, public sector net borrowing as a percentage of GDP will fall from 4% last year to 3.5% this year and will continue to fall over the Parliament, reaching 0.7% in 21-22. This will be, Mr Speaker, the lowest deficit as a share of GDP in two decades. The OBR expects cyclically adjusted public sector net borrowing to be 0.8% of GDP in 2020-21, comfortably meeting our target to reduce it to less than 2%, and importantly, leaving significant flexibility to respond to any headwinds the economy may encounter. The OBR's forecast of higher borrowing and slower asset sales, together with the temporary effect of the Bank of England's action to stimulate growth, translates into an increased forecast for debt in the near term. The OBR forecasts that debt will rise from 84.2% of GDP last year to 87.3% this year, peaking at 90.2% in 2017-18 as the Bank of England's monetary policy interventions approach their full effect. In 2018-19, debt is projected to fall to 89.7% of national income, the first fall in the national debt as a share of GDP since 2001-2, and it is forecast to continue falling thereafter. Uh, uh, Members of the House may be interested to know that stripping out the effects of the Bank of England interventions, underlying debt peaks this year at 82.4 per cent of GDP and falls thereafter to 77.7 per cent by 21 2022 Mr Speaker, it is customary in the run-up to the Autumn Statement to hear representations from the Shadow Chancellor of the Day Usually for untenable levels of spending and borrowing. Uh, we used to think on this side of the House that Ed Ball's demands were an extreme example, but I have to say the current shadow uh, Chancellor has outperformed him in the fiscal incontinent sweepstake, Mr. <laughs> Speaker. What we don't know, of course, is whether he can also dance. Yeah. <laughs> I have received some. He can. Good. Good. A second career awaits him, Mr Speaker. I have received, uh, Mr Speaker, some more measured representations from a range of external bodies, some of them calling for fiscal expansion, while others have suggested that there is no need at all to respond to a changed economic outlook, and that, that reflects, to be fair, the challenge that we face of resolving how best to protect the recovery build on the economy's manifest strengths, yet at the same time respond appropriately to the warnings of a more difficult period ahead. But with our debt forecast to peak at over 90 per cent next year, and a deficit this year of 3.5 per cent, I have reached my own judgement. It is a judgement based on a sober analysis of our fiscal position, but also a realistic appraisal of the weakness of UK productivity and the urgent need to address our fiscal challenge from both ends, continuing to control public expenditure, but also growing the potential of the economy and protecting the tax base. So we choose, in this autumn statement, to prioritise additional high-value investment, specifically in infrastructure and innovation, that will directly contribute to raising Britain's productivity yeah. and the key and the key judgment we make today Mr Speaker is that our hard-won credibility on public spending means that we can fund this commitment in the short term from additional borrowing while funding all other new policies announced in this autumn statement through additional tax and spending measures. That is the responsible way to secure our economy for the long term. Mr Speaker, the productivity gap is well known to Honourable and Right Honourable Members, but shocking nonetheless. It bears uh, repeating. We lag the US and Germany by some 30 percentage points in productivity, but we also lag France by over 20 points and Italy by 8 points. Which means, in the real world, it takes a German worker four days to produce what we make in five. And that means, in turn, that too many British workers work longer hours for lower pay than their counterparts. And that has to change if we are to build an economy that works for everyone. So raising productivity, Mr Speaker, is essential for the high-wage, high-skill economy that will deliver higher living standards for working people across this country. As a result of decisions taken by my predecessor, public investment is higher over this decade than it was over the whole of the period of the last Labour government. But today, I can go further. I can announce that we are forming a new national productivity investment fund of £23 billion to be spent on innovation and infrastructure over the next five years, investing today for the economy of the future. Let me set out, Mr Speaker for the House, how this money will be used. Mr Speaker, we do not invest enough in research, development and innovation. As the pace of technology advances and competition from the rest of the world increases, we must build on our strengths in science and tech innovation to ensure that the next generation of discoveries is not only made here, but is also developed and produced in Britain. So today I can confirm the additional investment in R&D, rising to an extra £2 billion per year by 2021, announced by my right honourable friend the Prime Minister on Monday. Mr Speaker, economically productive infrastructure directly benefits businesses. But families, too, rely on roads, rail, telecoms, and especially housing. We've made good progress, with the number of new homes being built last year hitting an eight-year high. But for too many, the goal of home ownership remains out of reach. In October, my Right Honourable Friend, the Communities Secretary, launched the £3 billion Home Builders Fund, to unlock over 200,000 homes and up to £2 billion to accelerate construction on public sector land, but we must go further still. The challenge of delivering the housing we so desperately need in the places where it is currently least affordable is not, of course, a new one, but the effect of unaffordable housing on our nation's productivity makes it an urgent one. My Right Honourable Friend, the Communities Secretary, will bring forward a housing white paper in due course, addressing these long-term challenges. But in the meantime, we can take further steps. One of the biggest objections to housing development, as uh, Honourable and Right Honourable Members will know from their own constituencies, is often the impact on local infrastructure. So we will focus Government infrastructure investment to unlock land for housing with a new £2.3 billion housing infrastructure fund to deliver infrastructure for up to 100,000 new homes in areas of high demand. And to provide affordable housing that supports a wide range of need, we will invest a further £1.4 billion to deliver 40,000 additional affordable homes. And I will also relax restrictions on government grant to allow providers to deliver a wider range of housing types. I can also announce a large-scale regional pilot of Right to Buy for Housing Association tenants and continued support, and continued support for home ownership through the Help to Buy Equity Loan Scheme and the Help to Buy ISA. Mr Speaker, this package means that over the course of this Parliament, the Government expects to more than double, in real terms, annual capital spending on housing. Coupled with our resolve to tackle the long-term challenges of land supply, this commitment to housing delivery represents a step change in our ambition to increase the supply of homes for sale and for rent, to deliver a housing market that works for everyone. Mr Speaker, reliable transport networks are essential to growth and productivity. So this autumn statement commits significant additional funding to help keep Britain moving now and to invest in the transport networks and vehicles of the future. I will commit an additional £1.1 billion of investment in English local transport networks where small investments can often offer big wins. £220 million additionally to address traffic pinch points on strategic roads 450 million pounds to trial digital signalling on our railways to achieve a step change in reliability and to squeeze more capacity out of our existing rail infrastructure something i know the leader of the opposition will welcome and finally and finally uh, mr speaker 390 million pounds to build on our competitive advantage in low-emission vehicles and the development of connected autonomous vehicles, plus a 100% first-year capital allowance for the installation of electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Yeah. The Department for Transport will continue to work with Transport for the North to develop detailed options for the Northern Powerhouse Rail, and my right honourable friend the Transport Secretary will set out more details of specific projects and priorities over the coming weeks. Mr Speaker, our future transport, business and lifestyle needs will require world-class digital infrastructure to underpin them. So my ambition is for... Yeah, it says here because I wrote it here. Uh, LAUGHTER So my, my, ambition, my ambition, Mr. Speaker, is for the UK to be a world leader in 5G. That means a full fibre network, a step change in speed, security and reliability. So we will invest over a billion pounds in our digital infrastructure to catalyse private investment in fibre networks and to support 5G trials. And from April from April, we will introduce 100 per cent business rates relief for a five-year period on new fibre infrastructure, supporting further rollout of fibre to homes and businesses. We have chosen, Mr Speaker, to borrow to kick-start a transformation in infrastructure and innovation investment but we must sustain this effort over the long term if we're to make a lasting difference to the UK's productivity performance. So today I have written to the National Infrastructure Commission to ask them to make their recommendations on the future infrastructure needs of the country using the assumption that the government will invest between 1% and 1.2% of GDP every year from 2020 in economic infrastructure covered by the Commission. To put that in context, will spend around 0.8% of GDP on the same definition this year. I am also backing the Commission's interim recommendations on the Oxford-Cambridge Growth Corridor, published last week, with £110 million of funding for East-West Rail and a commitment to deliver the new Oxford to Cambridge Expressway. But, Mr Speaker, this project can be more than just a transport link. It can become a transformational tech corridor drawing on the world-class research strengths of our two best-known universities. So I I welcome the Commission's continuing work on delivery model options, and we will carefully consider its final recommendations in due course. The major increase in infrastructure spending I've announced today will represent a significant increase in funding through the Barnett formula, of over £250 million to the Northern Ireland Executive, £400 million to the Welsh Government and £800 million to the Scottish Government. But Mr Speaker... I'm sure he will in a moment. But Mr Speaker, public investment... public investment is only part of the picture. About half of our economic infrastructure is financed by the private sector, and we will continue to support that investment through the UK Guarantee Scheme, which I am today extending until at least 2026. The new capital investment I've announced will provide the financial backbone for the Government's industrial strategy, which the Prime Minister spoke about on Monday a firm foundation upon which my right honourable friend the Business Secretary will work with industry to build our ambition of an economy that works for all. And I can announce four further measures to back business. I'm doubling UK export finance capacity to make it easier for British businesses to export. I'm funding Charlie Mayfield's business-led initiative to boost management skills across British businesses. And I'm taking a first step to tackle the long-standing problem of our fastest-growing start-up tech firms being snapped up by bigger companies rather than growing to scale by injecting an initial £400 million into venture capital funds through the British Business Bank, unlocking a £1 billion of new finance for growing firms. And I'm also launching today a Treasury-led review of the barriers to accessing patient capital in the UK so that we can take further action to address them. Mr Speaker, this Government recognises that for too long, economic growth in our country has been too concentrated in London And the South East. That is not just a social problem, it's an economic problem. London is one of the highest productivity cities in the world and we should celebrate that fact. But no other major developed economy has such a gap between the productivity of its capital city and its second and third cities. So we must drive up the performance of our regional cities. Today we publish our strategy for addressing productivity barriers in the northern powerhouse and give the go-ahead to a programme of major road schemes in the north. Our Midlands engine strategy will follow shortly but I am today providing funding so that the evaluation study for the Midlands rail hub can go ahead. In addition, we are investing in local infrastructure in every region of England. I can announce the allocation of £1.8 billion from the Local Growth Fund to the English regions. £556 million to local enterprise partnerships in the north of England, £542 million to the Midlands and east of England, and £683 million to LEPs in the southwest, south east, and London. We will announce the detailed breakdown of allocations to individual LEPs shortly. Devolution, Mr. Speaker, remains at the heart of this government's approach to supporting local growth, and we recommit today. To our city deals with Swansea, Edinburgh, North Wales and Tay cities. And I can announce today that we are beginning negotiations on a city deal for Stirling so that every single city in Scotland will be on course to have a city deal. <laughs> to support new mayoral combined authorities in England, I can announce that we will grant them new borrowing powers to reflect their new responsibilities. And while we continue discussions with London and the West Midlands on possible devolution of further powers, I can announce today that London will receive £3.15 billion as its share of national affordable housing funding to deliver a commitment of over 90,000 affordable homes, and also that we are devolving to London the adult education budget and giving London greater control over the delivery of employment support services for the hardest to help. Mr. Speaker, I have deliberately avoided making this statement into a long list of individual projects being supported. But but I am going to make one exception. I will act today with just seven days to spare to save one of the UK's most important historic houses, Wentworth Woodhouse, near Rotherham. It is said to be the inspiration for Pemberley in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. But in 1946, in an extraordinary act of cultural vandalism, the then Labour government authorised extensive open-cast coal mining virtually up to the front door of this precious property. Perhaps, Mr Speaker, that's Labour's idea of a northern powerhouse. (laughs) Wentworth Woodhouse is now at critical risk of being lost to future house. It sounds very interesting indeed. <laughs> Chancellor <laughs> Wentworth Woodhouse, Mr Speaker, is now at critical risk of being lost to future generations. A local effort has been hugely successful in securing millions of pounds in funding from various foundations and charities subject to the balance required to make the house safe, being found by November 30th. So we will today provide a £7.6 million grant towards urgent repairs to safeguard this key piece of Northern heritage, all but destroyed by a Labour government saved by a Conservative one. I can also, Mr Speaker, I can also Mr Speaker confirm I can also Mr Speaker confirm distribution of a further 102 million pounds of LIBOR bank fines to armed forces and emergency services charities including my honourable friends will be pleased to hear 20 million pounds to support the Defence and National Rehabilitation Centre at Stamford Hall in Nottinghamshire as well as £3 million from the Tampon Tax Fund for Comic Relief to distribute to a range of women's charities. Mr Speaker, we choose to invest in our economic infrastructure because it can transform the growth potential of our economy as well as improving the quality of people's lives. But that investment is only possible because we, on this side of the House, are prepared to take the tough decisions to maintain control of current spending, every one of them opposed by the party opposite. When we took office in 2010, public spending was 45 per cent of GDP. This year it is set to be 40 per cent. And during those six years, we've seen crime fall by more than a quarter, the highest proportion ever of good or outstanding schools, the number of doctors has increased by 10,000 in our NHS, pensioner poverty at its lowest level ever, the lowest ever number of children being raised in workless households, and the highest ever number of young people going on to study full-time at university. We, We have demonstrated beyond doubt that controlling public spending is compatible with world-class public services and social improvement but as the OBR's debt projections demonstrate we have more work to do to eliminate the deficit so departmental spending plans set out in the spending review last autumn will remain in place and departmental expenditure in 21-22 will grow in line with inflation The £3.5 billion of savings to be delivered through the Efficiency Review announced at the Budget, and led by my right honourable friend the Chief Secretary, must be delivered in full. I have, however, exceptionally agreed to provide additional funding to the Ministry of Justice to tackle urgent prison safety issues, increasing the number of prison officers by 2,500. Mr Speaker, having run two large spending departments in previous roles, I came to this job with some very clear views about the relationship between the Treasury and spending <laughs> departments. I want departments to be incentivised to drive efficiencies and I want the Treasurer, Treasury to be an enabler for good effective spending across government. To kick-start this new approach, I will allow up to £1 billion of the savings found by the Efficiency Review to be reinvested in 1920 in priority areas, and I have budgeted today accordingly. Mr Speaker, we manage public spending so that we can invest in the public's priorities. And this Government has underlined those priorities with a series of commitments and protections for the duration of this Parliament. And I can confirm today that despite the fiscal pressure, we will meet our commitments to protect the budgets of key public services and defence. We will keep our promise to the world's poorest through our overseas aid budget, and we will meet our pledge to our country's pensioners through the triple lock. But as we look ahead to the next Parliament, we will need to ensure that we tackle the challenges of rising longevity and fiscal sustainability. And so the Government will review public spending priorities and other commitments for the next Parliament in light of the evolving fiscal position at the next spending review. Mr Speaker, I now turn to taxation. Since 2010, this government has put a business-led recovery at the heart of our plan. We've cut corporation tax from 28% to 20%, sending the message that Britain is open for business. The additional investment in productivity and infrastructure that I've announced today underscores that message and the raft of investments in the UK announced since the referendum by SoftBank, Glaxo, Nissan, Google and Apple, amongst others, confirms it. My priority as Chancellor is to ensure that Britain remains the number one destination for business, creating the investment, the jobs and the prosperity to protect our long-term future. I know how much business values certainty and stability, and so I confirm today that we will stick to the business tax roadmap that we set out in March. Corporation tax will fall to 17%, by far the lowest overall rate of corporate tax in the G20. We will deliver the commitments we have made to the oil and gas sector. The carbon price support will continue to be capped out to 2020, and we will implement the business rates reduction package worth £6.7 billion. I can also confirm today that, having consulted further, my Right Honourable Friend the Community Secretary will lower the transitional relief cap from 45 per cent next year to 43 per cent, and from 50 per cent to 32 per cent the year after. That's complicated, but it's good news. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Just in case anybody wasn't sure, Mr Speaker. And I will, also increase, I will also increase the rural rate relief to 100%, giving small businesses in rural areas a tax break worth up to £2,900 per year. But Mr Speaker, in return for these highly competitive tax rates, the tax base must be sustainable. From April 2017, we will align the Employee and Employer National Insurance thresholds at £157 per week. There will be no cost to employees, and the maximum cost to business will be an annual £7.18 per employee. Insurance premium tax in this country is lower than in many other European countries and half the rate of VAT. In order to raise revenue, which is required to fund the spending commitments I am making today, it will rise from 10 per cent currently to 12 per cent from next June. At the same time, I can confirm that the Government's commitment to legislate next year to end the compensation culture surrounding whiplash claims, a major area of insurance fraud, and that will save drivers an average of £40 on their annual premiums. Mr Speaker, technological progress is changing the way people live and the way they work the tax system needs to keep pace. For example, the OBR has highlighted today the growing cost to the exchequer of incorporation. So the government will consider how we can ensure that the taxation of different ways of working is fair between different individuals doing essentially the same work and sustains the tax base as the economy undergoes rapid change. We will consult in due course on any proposed changes. In the meantime, the Government will take action now to reduce the difference between the treatment of cash earnings and benefits. The majority of employees pay tax on a cash salary, but some are able to sacrifice salary by agreement with their employer and pay much lower tax on benefits in kind. This is unfair. And so from April 2017, employers and employees who use these schemes will pay the same taxes as everyone else following consultation with stakeholders following consultation with stakeholders ultra low emission cars pension savings childcare and the cycle to work scheme will be excluded from this change and certain long-term and certain long-term arrangements will be protected until April 2021 for pensions that have been in- drawn down I will also reduce to £4,000 the Money Purchase Annual Allowance to prevent inappropriate double tax relief being gained. This Government, Mr Speaker, has done more than any other to tackle tax evasion, avoidance and aggressive tax planning. And the UK tax gap, it may surprise some honourable members opposite to here, is now one of the lowest in the world. But we must constantly be alert to new threats to our tax base and be willing to move swiftly to counter them. At the Budget, we committed to removing the tax benefits of disguised earnings for employees and I am now going to do the same for the self-employed and employers, raising a further £630 million over the forecast period. We will shut down inappropriate use of the VAT flat rate scheme that was put in place to help small businesses. We will abolish the tax advantages linked to employee shareholder status in response to growing evidence that it is being primarily used for tax planning purposes by high-earning individuals. And we will introduce a new penalty for those who enable the use of a tax avoidance scheme that HMRC later challenges and defeats. These measures, and others set out in the Autumn Statement document raise around £2 billion over the forecast period. Mr Speaker, there is understandable public concern that the pitch is tilted in favour of large multinational groups which are able to use cross-border structures to manage their tax liabilities. Following detailed consultation, I can confirm that we will implement our new restriction on tax relief for corporate interest expenses, and reform the way that relief is provided for historic losses. These measures, scored at Budget 2016, will help to ensure large businesses will always pay tax in years where they make substantial profits. They will also mean that businesses cannot avoid tax by borrowing excessively in the UK to fund their overseas activities. They take effect in April and raise over £5 billion from the largest businesses in the UK. Mr Speaker, I said that the tax system must be fair, and that means rewarding those who work hard by helping them to keep more of what they earn. And there is one tax reform this government has pursued since 2010 that has done more than any other to improve the lot of working people, raising the tax-free personal allowance. When we entered government in 2010, it was £6,475. Now, after six years, it is £11,000 and will rise to £11,500 in April. As a result, we have more than half the tax bill of someone with a salary of £15,000 to just £800. That is a massive boost to the incomes of low and middle earners. Since Since 2010, We've cut income tax for 28 million people and taken 4 million people out of income tax altogether. And I can confirm today that despite the challenging fiscal forecasts, we will deliver on our commitment to raising the allowance to £12,500 and the higher rate threshold to £50,000 by the end of this Parliament. Once that £12,500 has been reached, Mr Speaker, the personal allowance will rise automatically during the 2020s in line with inflation, rather than the national minimum wage as currently planned. It will be for the Chancellor to decide from year to year whether more is affordable as well as taking millions of ordinary people out of tax we are the government that introduced the national living wage and gave a pay rise gave a pay rise mr speaker to over a million workers they don't like it a tory government gave a pay rise to over a million of the lowest paid workers We are the government that introduced 15 hours a week of free childcare for all three- and four-year-olds and will double that for working families from September. The government whose education reforms have raised standards and expanded opportunity with 1.4 million more children now in good or outstanding schools. And the new capital funding that I've provided today for grammar schools will help to continue that trend. And we, Mr Speaker, are the Government that pledged to invest in our NHS and we are delivering on that promise, backing the NHS five-year forward view plan for the future with £10 billion of additional funding by the end of 2020-2021. But we recognise that more needs to be done to help families make ends meet and to ensure every household has opportunities to prosper. So today I can announce that the national living wage will increase from £7.20 to £7.50 in April next year. That's a pay rise worth over £500 a year to a full-time worker. Mr Speaker, creating jobs, lowering taxes and raising wages addresses directly the concerns of ordinary families. And the revenue-raising measures that I've announced today enable me to go further to help families on low wages. Universal credit is an important reform to our benefit system and is designed to make sure that work always pays. We want to reinforce that position. I have considered very carefully the arguments made by my right honourable friend, the member for Chinkford and Woodford Green, by my honourable friend the member for Enfield-Southgate and others, and weighed them carefully against the fiscal constraints we are facing. I have concluded that from April, we can reduce the universal credit taper rate from 65% to 63%. This is effectively a targeted tax cut worth £700 million a year by 21-22 for those in work on low incomes. It will increase the incentive to work and encourage progression in work, and it will help three million households across our country. Mr Speaker, we believe that a market economy is the best way of delivering sustained prosperity for the British people. We will always support a market-led approach, but we will not be afraid to intervene where there is evidence of market failure. We will look carefully over the coming months at the functioning of key markets, including the retail energy market, to make sure they are functioning fairly for all consumers. And in the private rental market, letting agents are currently able to charge unregulated fees to tenants. We have seen these fees spiral, despite attempts to regulate them, often to hundreds of pounds. This is wrong? Landlords appoint letting agents and landlords should meet their fees. So I can announce today that we will ban fees to tenants as soon as possible. And also, Mr Speaker, we will consult on how best to ban pensions cold calling and a wider range of pension scams. We can also help today those who rely on income from modest savings to get by. Low interest rates have helped our economy recover but they have significantly reduced the interest people can earn on their cash savings. So we will launch a new market-leading savings bond through NS&I. The detail will be announced at the Budget, but we expect our new investment bond will have an interest rate of around 2.2 per cent gross and a term of three years. Savers will be able to deposit up to £3,000 and we expect around 2 million people to benefit. Mr Speaker, the announcements I have made today lower taxes on working people, boost wages, back savers, and bear down on bills. In early 2017, we will begin the rollout of tax-free childcare across Britain, providing a saving of up to £2,000 per child. And once it's rolled out, we pledge to keep it under review to ensure that it is indeed delivering the support they need to working families. There is one further area of household expenditure where the government can help. The oil price has risen by over 60% since January, and sterling has declined by 15% against the dollar. That means, of course, significant pressure on prices at the pumps here in Britain. So today, we stand on the side of millions of hardworking people in our country by cancelling the fuel duty rise for the seventh successive year. In total, this saves the average car driver £130 a year and the average van driver £350 a year. This is a tax cut worth £850 million next year, Mr Speaker, and means the current fuel duty freeze is the longest for 40 years. Mr Speaker, I have one further announcement to make. This is my first autumn statement as Chancellor. After careful consideration and detailed discussion with the Prime Minister, I have decided that it will also be my last. Mr Speaker, I am abolishing the autumn statement. major economy makes hundreds of tax changes twice a year and neither should we so the spring budget in a few months will be the final spring budget starting in autumn 2017 Britain will have an autumn budget announcing tax changes well in advance of the start of the tax year from 2018 there will be a spring statement responding to the forecast Perhaps they should have read their briefing, Mr Speaker. a great state of emotion. Some people are very easily humoured. I'm glad to see they're so humoured. But we must hear the Chancellor. The Chancellor. Perhaps they should have read their briefing, Mr Speaker, because they might remember that Parliament has mandated the Office of Budget Responsibility to produce a report to Parliament twice a year and has mandated the Government to reply to it. So from 2018, there will be a spring statement responding to the forecast from the OBR but no major fiscal event if unexpected changes in the economy require it i will of course reserve the right to announce actions at the spring statement but i will not make significant changes twice a year just for the sake of it this change this change will allow for greater parliamentary scrutiny of budget measures ahead of their implementation. Mr Speaker, this is a long overdue reform to our tax policy making process and brings the UK into line with best practice recommended by the IMF, the IFS, Institute for Government and many others. Mr Speaker, the OBR report today confirms the underlying strength and resilience of the British economy. This autumn statement responds to the challenge of building on that strength while also heeding the warnings in the OBR's figures as we begin writing this new chapter in our country's history. It restates our commitment to living within our means, and it sets out our choice to invest in our future. It sends a clear message to the world that Britain is open for business, and it provides help to those who need it now. So, Mr Speaker, we have made our choices. We have set our course. We are a great nation. Bold in our vision, confident in our strengths, and determined in our ambition to build a country that works for everyone. I commend this statement. John MacDonald.
2: this morning Mr. Speaker this morning we've we've heard the verdict from the trial following the tragic murder of Jo Cox. Jo Cox's murder robbed this house of a fierce advocate for social justice and a passionate campaigner. Her killing was an attack on democracy itself. Our thoughts are with her family this morning. Mr Speaker, today's statement places on record the abject failure of the last six wasted years and offers no hope for the future. The figures speak for themselves. Growth down. Wage growth down. Business investment down. And the deficit... And the deficit... And the... And their own deficit target failed. The debt target failed. The welfare cap failed. We've heard today, Mr Speaker. Order. Let me just say now, if members on either side want to shout out, don't bother to stand
1: because you won't be called. I say that to members on both sides. Stop it. It's juvenile, low grade, and hugely deprecated by the public whose support we should be seeking and whom we should try
2: to impress, not to repel. John MacDonald. Thank you, Mr Speaker. We've heard today there will be more taxes, more debt and more borrowing. The verdict could not be clearer. The so-called long-term economic plan has failed. And as the Treasury's own leaked paper revealed, the Government knew it had failed before the referendum result was announced. And we now face Brexit, the greatest economic challenge of a generation, and we face it unprepared and ill-equipped. The new Chancellor acknowledged the failure of himself in October of the economic strategy when he promised a reset of economic policy. So today we expected, we expected a change of direction after those six wasted years. Instead, we have seen further cuts to earnings for those in work through cuts to universal credit and a living wage increase that is lower than expected under the previous Chancellor. This is a new Conservative leadership with no answers to the challenges facing our country following Brexit and no vision to secure our future prosperity. Just turning to Brexit, Labour respects the decision of the British people to leave the European Union. But the chaotic Tory handling of Brexit threatens the future prosperity of this country. The Chancellor must now do the right thing for British workers and businesses. He must insist on full, tariff-free access to the single market. He and the Treasury know that's what will give the best deal for jobs and prosperity here. I just say it may not be in the Chancellor's nature, but in the national interest, I urge him to stand up to the Prime Minister and the extreme Brexit fanatics in her Cabinet. If he stands up for British businesses and jobs in fighting for single market access he will have our full support. But after six wasted years wages are still lower than 2008. Self-employed people, self-employed people are on average paid less than a generation ago. Six million people are earning less than the living wage. Too many people are having to worry about buying school uniforms, affording a family holiday or even just paying the rent or mortgage. We've had a month of briefing from the party opposite on those people who are called just about managing the jams. To the party opposite, these people are just an electoral demographic. To us, to us, to us they're our friends, our neighbours and the people we represent. Let me tell you what they are, why they are just managing. Why are they just managing? It's the results of Tories imposing austerity on an economy that couldn't bear the strain. We've seen productivity stagnate, but there's nothing in this autumn statement on the scale needed to overturn those six wasted years. If the Chancellor really wants to make a fair tax system as well, he can start by bringing back the 50p rate for the very richest in our country. And it's familiar, it is familiar, hollow rhetoric from the Tories on tax avoidance. When they've cut the resources at HMRC, the very people there staff to collect the taxes themselves. Resources available to HMRC today are 40% less than they were in 2000. The Chancellor has frozen in-work benefits at a time when food prices are rising and we don't expect wages to keep up. We need an economy that is fundamentally more prosperous and where that prosperity is, yes, shared by all. The increase in the national living wage announced today are actually lower than expected and leave the poorest paid workers still earning less than they need to live on. So I ask the Chancellor. To adopt a real living wage level, as Labour has pledged to do, and abandon his predecessor's empty rhetoric. Regrettably the Chancellor is still going ahead with some of the cuts to universal credit. Thanks to the pressure, and I pay tribute to those MPs on all sides of the House who've campaigned on this issue, thanks to that pressure he's offering to soften the blow. We do not want the blow softened. We want it lifted altogether. Today's changes will leave a single parent, on average, at least £2,300 worse off. These are the very people who are working hard to deliver for their families. And the the government is betraying them. As for the people with disabilities put through the ordeal of the discredited work capability assessment, are trying to get themselves ready to return to work just about managing, they still remain in the Chancellor's firing line, cutting £30 a week from the support that these disabled people receive. It is scandalous in our society. Those who are just about managing also rely upon our public services. They send our, their children to local schools. They depend on their local hospital. They rely on their council services, like cleaning the streets, tending to their parks and playgrounds, and opening their libraries. But the reality is, after six wasted years, our public services are just not managing. Today that ch- the childcare that parents rely upon remains underfunded, as the Public Accounts Committee has reported and it will remain underfunded even after the announcements today. Yeah. I want to pay tribute as well to the Honourable Members for Swansea East and Erith and Thamesmead for their important work in bringing the issue of child burial fees to the public attention. Yeah. And I ask the Government to do the right thing on child burial fees yes. and reconsider making funding available for families in these desperate circumstances. Yeah. Councillors from all political parties are reporting that they are at a tipping point in the provision of social care The previous Chancellor cut nearly five billion pounds from social care Meaning now that over 1 million people who need care aren't getting it They're not even just about managing and they've got little help today We call for additional support for for social care. But the funding being provided today is only a stopgap measure. Our social care system will not be secure without long-term funding. Tonight, many elderly people will remain trapped in their homes, isolated and lonely, lacking the care they need because of this continuing cuts to social care. You can't cut social care without also hitting the NHS. The supposed £10 billion funding allocated is a restatement of an earlier commitment. But the Health Select Committee described this £10 billion claim as, I quote, misleading and incorrect. The real amount is less than half that claimed. The result? We now have 3.9 million people on NHS waiting lists, more than ever many of those 3.9 people are waiting in pain and they got no relief today no relief today across the country hospitals are facing losing their accident emergency units losing their maternity units and losing their specialist units this tory government is failing patients and also failing the dedicated nhs staff that serve us so well this is the first time Healthcare spending per head has declined since the NHS was created. And I fear there will be a crisis in funding and care over this Christmas. The NHS cares for us. We should care for the NHS. Yeah. On education, members of this government have also overseen the biggest real terms cuts in education for four decades. One pound in every seven has been cut from FE college budgets, and Conservative policy has saddled a generation of students with a lifetime of debt. How can a government seriously talk about supporting a 21st century economy when they're planning to pour tens of millions into the failed 20th century policy of grammar schools, segregating our children at an early age? On housing, the Chancellor has announced today that he's scrapping pay-to-stay proposals and letting agents' fees. This U-turn is a victory for Labour's campaigning against both the tenant tax and letting fees. The Chancellor has spoken before of the dream of home ownership for the young. Nothing announced today is of the scale needed to suggest it will remain anything other than a dream. The hard facts are these. The Government of which he was a member built fewer homes than at any point since the 1920s. There are now a third of a million fewer homeowners under 35. The Chancellor today could have delivered the scale of investment required to build the homes we need and create a new generation of home ownership. He significantly failed. I'm grateful as a result of the campaign from the Honourable Member Wentworth and Dean that the Wentworth and Woodhouse building will be saved. I'm grateful. The accusation was that a Labour government opened an open cast mine near to it and threatened it. That was the Labour government I believe in 1947. I just wish I just wish I just wish Some of the policies pursued by Tory Governments since the 1950s could be reversed so easily. (laughs) The biggest failure of investment is this. The Chancellor has failed to address properly this Government's most consistent shortcoming. His predecessor cut public investment to the lowest it's been since the 1990s. Instead of delivering the ambitious investment this economy needs across the whole country, the Chancellor has failed to recognise the scale of the challenge today. He also risked repeating the sp- mistakes from last year with the National Flood Resilience Plan, failing to provide the protection our communities need. Just one in five of the projects in the investment pipeline are under construction, and there are 82 billion of shovel- shovel-ready projects still delayed. The infrastructure gap between London and the rest remains unbridged, London was scheduled to receive 12 times the public investment per head of the north-east of England. But the £1.1 billion of investment in transport is a re-announcement. The Oxford-Cambridge Rail Link is significantly delayed against Network Rail's original planned completion date of March 2019. There are just no new ideas here, just a promise to deliver what they previously failed to deliver on. This is press release policy making and not provision. And all we need now is the return of the high-vis jacket. The fourth industrial revolution will not be delivered, the fourth industrial revolution will not be delivered on delays, on old news and reannouncements. At last the government has realised its mistake and now talk about an industrial strategy. Words that ministers refused to even refer to in the past. But it isn't enough just to change a few ministerial titles. The Government and the Chancellor need to deliver. But we've yet to see the proposed green paper on industrial strategy that was promised over the summer. The same Government that now talks also of high-tech investment oversaw a £1 billion cut in real terms to science funding in the last Parliament. The OECD recommends that developed countries should be spending 3% of GDP on science. And what we've heard today, the new spending will lift our expenditure from 1.7% of GDP to a mere 1.8%. And it's the same familiar story for business. The chancellor has continued the race to the bottom on corporation tax, while continuing to cut the cuts to public services, the Chancellor is cutting taxes to big business. We know it's not the headline tax rates that encourage long-term investment from businesses. Business investment has been revised down every year under this government. What encourages business investment is knowing they have access to skilled workers, to world-class infrastructure and to major markets. Today's grim economic forecasts show the challenge ahead. The Chancellor admitted over the summer that it was time for a change of course. He has now had to abandon his Government's Fiscal Charter with its failed hard surplus target. Labour warned that a hard surplus target lacks the flexibility to adapt to economic circumstances and the capacity to allow investment. The Chancellor's U-turn today demonstrates just how right we have been over this last year. In conclusion, Mr Speaker Only weeks ago ago, the Prime Minister offered a hope of change. The Chancellor offered to reset economic policy. Today we have seen the very people the Prime Minister promised to champion, betrayed. The Chancellor has failed to break with the economic strategy of austerity. The country remains unprepared and ill-equipped to meet the challenges of Brexit and secure Britain's future as a world-leading economy after all the sacrifices after all the sacrifices people have made over the last 6 years i fear today's statement has laid the foundations for more wasted years only a labor government will deliver on the ambition and vision to rebuild to rebuild and transform our economy so that no one so that no one and no community is left behind